Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Dictionary.com has made complicit the 2017 word of the year. We consider our collective responsibility and Lindy West's powerful statement that the opposite of complicity isn't apology, it's fixing what you broke. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, everyone. Before we get started, we have a small ask. We would love ratings and reviews for both Pantsuit Politics and especially The Nuanced Life. We This is our new podcast where we talk about life beyond politics. It's like an extended final section of this show. And we really need your ratings and reviews um, in the podcast app on your iPhone so that other listeners can discover The Nuanced Life. So if you have a few seconds, please hop on over there and leave us a rating and review. We also really appreciate your support on Patreon.com. That enables us to do the show and to continue building the Pantsy Politics community. It's going to be an important part of us being able to travel some in 2018 and bring the conversations that we have on the podcast to college campuses and organizations and other schools. So we really appreciate your support there. Patreon.com. We are 
excited about our bonus episode for this month. If you subscribe at the $15 a month level or more, you get an extra episode of Pantsuit Politics. We usually do it by video, which we will do this month. And we're doing the 12 days of Christmas Pantsuit Politics style. It will not be exclusively holiday focused. We're going to talk about some down ballot races. We're going to talk about gift giving. It's going to be a wide ranging discussion because that's our favorite kind. (laughs) So today we want to talk about Donald Trump. It's a special day. Wait, no, it's not a special day. It's like every other day. So we wanted to kick off the show talking about some of the um, reporting errors, um, our president's reactions to them, and also um, the, I don't even know the right word for the article, the hour-by-hour fight for Donald Trump's self-preservation, a big New York Times um, piece on his sort of day-to-day routine uh, based on about 60 insider interviews. So um, which would you like to tackle first, Beth? Well, let's go with the reporting errors first. I've been thinking a lot about all the things I don't want to carry into 2018 with me. Shoo. Oh, fake news, please. Fake please. news, exactly, please. is one of the things that I would love to uh, not carry what into I would, 2018. Uh, there is there is not much I wouldn't give up to never hear the words fake news again. Like, I would, I love my minivan. I would, like, tote my kids around in a Civic. I would maybe give up. Any number of television shows and books, treats. I don't, I'm just trying to think of things I really love that I would sacrifice to never hear those words together again. Look, the genius of Donald Trump is taking information that is devastating to him and turning it into a sword. And that's what he's done with fake news. But let's run through because it is important to understand the facts of what's happened over the past week. Three different media outlets have had what I would characterize as relatively minor reporting errors that were quickly corrected. They're not insignificant. They are definitely significant to the facts, but they were quickly corrected and apologies have been issued. Dave Weigel, a Washington Post reporter, tweeted a photo of Trump's Florida campaign rally, which I just, anyway, it looked like a small crowd there. And he took the picture down when the crowd size increased and the president has tweeted about it and demanded an apology and called it fake news because, you know, he has the biggest and best crowds of all time. So basically he took a picture when the event was getting started, when everybody wasn't there yet. And then when more people showed up, he took the picture down. Correct. Wow. Now, it was it was a misleading photograph, but also he took it down when he realized I'm it was so a misleading glad we're all photograph. spending time on this. CNN in a story that it billed as an exclusive, reported that President Trump and other campaign officials received an email offer of a website and decryption key for hacked DNC documents. The timing of the message is important. CNN reported that the email was sent on September 4th, 2016, which would have been before a WikiLeaks dump. It was actually sent on September 14th, meaning the email was referencing documents that had already been released to the public. CNN corrected its reporting, moved on. Honestly, that one to me sounded like somebody had a typo. The 4th versus the 14th. But I don't know. I mean, it is important. Like, these things are supposed to be correct. That is a material difference. It's still not great to be receiving the offer of a website and decryption key for hack documents. But anyway. And then finally, uh, Brian Ross of ABC had another timing 
um, issue. He reported that during the campaign, the president had directed Michael Flynn to make contact with Russian officials. And it was actually the contact had actually been directed to be after the campaign when the president was president elect. And so that that's a key error as well. And Brian Ross has actually been suspended from ABC. So lots of mistakes here. The president has said they are out of control, referring to the media. Correct reporting means nothing to them. Major lies written, then forced to be withdrawn after they are exposed, a stain on America. And he added that the reports are purposefully false and and defamatory. Which is not true. I don't think it's true. No. I guess what I want to say about this is that we are in an unprecedented time, even not related to Donald Trump, but he certainly adds to this, the amount of important information to cover and the speed at which news outlets compete to cover that information Mm -hmm. continues to accelerate. And so there are going to be more mistakes until everyone slows down a little bit. And I think a good thing that can come out of this is more conversation about the need to slow down a little bit. Here's um, what I'm wondering. Did the president tweet out when the Washington Post correctly identified a James O'Keefe spy from Project Veritas that tried to set a trap for them, which they, through good journalism and good ethics, avoided? Did he talk about that at all? Anybody? It is ironic to hear this president talking about the importance of factual accuracy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I mean, like, there you go. There's a perfect example of this this media outlet you hate doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And I don't remember you talking about that at all, because Roy Moore is a hot freaking story. And they could have printed that and they could have fallen for it. And they could have been like, heck, yeah, now we have somebody calling for an abortion. He wanted them to get an abortion. But they didn't. They did their jobs and good for them. And they reserve praise for that. It's just frustrating because anything, we're just in this mode, right, of just anything that bolsters our side of Mm -hmm. the fight, we seize on, and anything that doesn't, we attack. Well, here's the thing, though. This is the only thing I want to say, is I feel like this is not a we story. This is a Donald Trump story. I had a lovely weekend. You know what nobody mentioned? This ish. You know what I mean? Like nobody cares. I mean, I'm not saying nobody cares, but I don't think this is on the um, even the most partisan person I know on either sides. Like they're not just up in arms about tiny factual errors. And I'm not saying that this doesn't the way he talks about it doesn't have a long term effect on people's attitudes about the press. But I did see recently that the actual the the reputation of the press has actually increased since the election. So, hey, there's that. There's a lot for them to do. And I think this does connect to the story from The New York Times that you wanted to talk about, Sarah, because he uses this in that hour by hour battle for legitimacy and self-preservation. Oh, my gosh, y'all, this article. Okay, here's the first thing. The two juicy tidbits that immediately got play all over Twitter was that he drinks 12 Diet Cokes a day and can watch up to eight hours of cable news a day. Okay, so here's the first thing. I just want to make a plea for the man's mental health, because if I drank 12 Diet Cokes a day and watched eight hours of cable news, I would be a completely different person. I would be a different person. I'm not even kidding. Can you fathom... The psychological effect those two things would have on you? 
No, and I drink Diet Coke, but not 12? in the neighborhood of 12 a day. Exactly. No. I mean, that's just, that's an insane amount of sugar and caffeine and what they do to your body. And well, it's not sugar. I mean, it's, oh, it's that's a good not, point. It's not sugar. It's, it's not, not even real sugar. stuff. Right. And like, also just, oh man, I, I can watch, I don't, I leave in a foul mood when I'm at the gym and I have to watch four screens of cable news for 20 minutes on mute. I cannot fathom what kind of outlook I would have on the world if that's all I was watching. And I mean, so that's the first thing. I just was kind of like, man, I almost feel sorry for you if that's what your days are, just a steady stream of Diet Cokes and cable news. That is my, that's my own personal hell. You know what it made me think about? And, and I'll tell you, my first reaction to this story was, haven't I read this before? Like ha. a lot. Because I do think that the New York Times has particularly become obsessed with sort of his personal habits in a way that I don't find super useful. But putting that aside, when you try to carve out some space for feeling sorry for him or having some empathy, what it reminds me of is the I check our statistics a lot for the pantsuit politics. I check mm-hmm. our downloads. I check our ratings and reviews because I'm a I'm a business person, right? And I look for data all the time. And so I always have this feeling, especially before I check our reviews, of like, okay, Beth, it's if somebody said something awful, it's okay. If somebody doesn't like this, it's all right. If this show isn't downloaded a lot, it's okay. You're okay. Everything's fine. But it gives me this like horrible, sick feeling for like half a second before mm-hmm. I give myself that pep talk, because you want good feedback, right? And if I were the president of the United States living for the feedback of cable oh news, my God. I can't even imagine how awful that would be. Awful. I think you would just have to make a decision that you're not going to look and go on. About, yeah, that's what they and all I don't know, do. They I don't all know say how that. you have time to look anyway, but you have to just go on about your business and do the best that you can. I mean, but here's the thing. He has no other business. He only did this so that he could be the king. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't have anything else to focus on because all he cares about is himself. And so how people feel about him is literally his only business. That's literally his business. And it always has been. And I thought, what did he do when he was a real estate guy? And I bet you he he took the Sharpies to the newspaper when he, in the New York City papers, and saw what his write-ups were and talked about what people were thinking. I mean, he probably did this the exact, I I would imagine that it wasn't that much different. I mean, the part where Jared Kushner's like, he's 71, he's set in his ways, he's not going to change. I just thought, talk about modeling, like, self-reflection and self-awareness for the country. We just talked about this with relationships of parent and children. And, like, I just, I, oh, man. I mean, it confirmed all my sort of worst instincts about him, as these pieces often do. And it just, it honestly made me feel a little bit sorry for him. Because that has to be, they all say they don't watch news. Obama said he never watched it. W said he never watched it. Because, like, if you have the most base instinct for self-preservation why would you like he doesn't but like this it's not really an accurate title because that's not self-preservation that is just self-destroying i don't understand and you know there's a loop because Mm -hmm. pieces like this reinforce that for him and reinforce for his supporters that he's being treated unfairly I've been thinking about this a lot with the the election of uh, Roy Moore and Doug Jones coming up in Alabama tomorrow. Well, it's the day that we release this podcast. <sighs> I wonder to what extent the piling on contributes to that sense of, 
I'll vote for whoever I damn well please. Because it has been a piling on, right? It's a scandalous story. As you said, it's it's a hot story. People will cover it and they will get clicks and eyeballs and attention. And because of that, it has been covered like no other. And I just wonder to what extent President Trump being covered for drinking Diet Coke and ordering McDonald's and sitting with the remote makes people who would otherwise be more open-minded double down makes Alabama voters say, screw you all. I will do what I want to do. See, you're biased. You don't want him to win. You don't want this to happen. Now, the other side of me says, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? Not cover this? Are they not supposed to let us know how our president is spending his time? I want to know that Mm -hmm. he's been on a prompt a Trump property 104 days of his first Mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. I want to know that information. I think that I am entitled to it as a member of the voting public. So I get what a difficult time this is. Shoot, we have trouble making editorial decisions about this podcast, and we have such a slim number of considerations compared to outlets like the New York Times. It is very challenging right now. Here's the thing. To the people who are going to look at this and say, like, like if you're going to, like, revenge vote... I mean, I, I don't need, I, I'm sorry. I, I acknowledge that you are here, but I'm not going to be able to convince you. Like, if you're to the point where you're just being like, burn it to the ground because I hate liberals and screw everybody. Like, forget it. I'm not even going to bother with you. That sounds bad. It's not that I don't want you to live here. Stay in the country. We'll try to get along the best we can. But like, if you're at it, there's nothing I can do if your attitude is like that. I really feel like that. And I mean, I think you're right. I think we have a right to know what he's being like. I, and I think that the New York Times, although I have a lot of issues with how they cover things, I'm not always happy with the New York Times either. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that that can be there. I don't think that can, at least they're going to tell themselves that's not part of their equation. You know, like they can't, they can't think, well, is this going to piss off his base? They just, you know, they can't think like that. I mean, I know that's the only, that's the guiding light of Breitbart, but thank God New York Times isn't Breitbart. So I was having a text exchange with our listener, Bren, this morning about some of the New York Times editorial decisions. Mm. And I had this very fascinating uh, conversation over Facebook Messenger this weekend with a communications professor at a college that we'll be visiting next year. And we were talking about how difficult it is for students today to distinguish between commentary and actual journalism. Mm. And we were talking about new media and old media and how difficult it becomes to distinguish between them sometimes because they mirror each other, right? Old media starts to adopt some of the tactics of new media. And so it all starts to blend together. It all starts to look the same. We have all this information at our fingertips, but we're not great at asking from where did this information come? How is this information sourced? Who all has contributed to fact checking it? And Thinking about all of that and talking with Bryn this morning, here's my idea. What if we went full transparency with everything for a while to see how it goes? What if the New York Times said, let's pretend I'm a New York Times reporter because I don't want to make any guesses about the political leanings of the people of the New York Times. So I'm a reporter. What if it said, this is commentary by Beth Silvers, a registered Republican? Or this piece was reported by Beth Silvers, a registered Republican. It was fact-checked by the following four people and listed their party affiliations Mm -hmm. and, you know, had different parties in that list of fact-checkers or whatever. Because I think media outlets really, really try to get this stuff right. 
I do not think this is a bunch of partisans trying to force an agenda down people's throat. I think that happens at Fox News pretty blatantly. And I wouldn't have said that even a couple years ago, but it's just become too blatant to even be a little bit equivocating about. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder what it would be like to try a new way of explicitly labeling work for what it is and and the author for who the author is. So here's the thing. Uh, I think a lot of reporters aren't registered and they'll tell you that they, I mean, Katie Terry talked in our book that she doesn't vote. So I think that won't work all the time because they're going to say they don't have political leanings and they're going to insist they don't have political leanings. If That's you a are, problem, right? Yeah. But in the, and maybe, look, I think that there are reporters who, okay, so let, here's the thing. Their political leanings aside, if you are a person who believes that there is a liberal media bias, which arguably, look, there is. And this is the reason why. It's not because of George Soros or some massive conspiracy. It is because to survive and to thrive, for the most part, in these industries, and um, particularly at the New York Times, the Washington Post, you have to have basically come from a massive amount of money. Not a massive amount of money, but you have to have financial support because they do not pay well and they are very expensive cities. And to sort of build up your career, it just, it takes getting into the right university. It takes being able to live in the right place. It takes being able to have some other financial support because who the heck can live in New York City on like a New York Times researcher's salary. You know what I mean? So there's a really good Twitter thread after Matt Lauer was fired. And the guy was like, just don't let's not do this. Let's not do these stars. Like take that twenty six million dollars and pay more and better reporters like the PBS NewsHour has um, a Peabody and they don't spend anywhere near the salaries you guys do on these quote unquote stars. So, like, I just think that let's pay journalists better. Let's demand of the if you want to demand something of the liberal media, then demand that they make it easier to have more diversity from perspectives in hiring. So like even if you get somebody there that is a Democrat, maybe they're a Democrat from Texas or the middle of Iowa, you know what I mean? Or Kentucky, Mm -hmm. even better, so that they have a diverse perspective, even if their politics have become more liberal over time. Because I think that's what's missing from the media. And I think that's how you got the election of Donald Trump is because for the most part, It is a very closed universe of schools and geographic locations and economics that produces the people who work in that industry. I wondered about that when I was watching the Frank Luntz focus group that's been everywhere this week with a group of Alabama voters. What would it have sounded like to have, and I specifically thought of you, Sarah, if you had been asking those questions, a youngish woman from Kentucky mm-hmm. who has an accent that is more recognizable to Alabama voters, what would it be like to have a conversation with different voices in it? I've been very frustrated with the Daily, the New York Times podcast, which I love oh, and we reference all the time. I know, me too. But these choices to highlight and, and the new Washington, these choices to highlight Sean Hannity, to highlight James O'Keefe, to highlight all of these admitted provocateurs voices Mm -hmm. if you want to highlight different media there's a whole world out there of people trying to do a really good job that don't have anywhere near the platform of a sean hannity go do that highlight those people i mean here's the thing about frank lutz like yes i get it you're a pollster you're a focus you do focus groups but really what you do is market and sell the results of those focus groups was it on 60 minutes 
This was on Vice. On Vice. Do we think Vice would have been interested in a focus group where people are like, I'm really torn up about it. I don't usually vote Democrat. I think this is offensive. No, they wouldn't. If it was like this nuanced sort of everybody being like, I don't know what the heck to do, they wouldn't have put it on Vice. So, I mean, I'm always a little half suspicious of Frank Luntz focus groups because I think he has a he has an opinion of where the country is and he has an opinion of sort of. Even subconsciously, what media outlets are interested in focusing on. I wasn't super happy with the Oprah thing they did because I think it just plays to this narrative. And I think you and I could go out and have a focus group. Like we could just pull from the focus group of our dang listeners and it wouldn't sound like that. So I'm bothered by the whole thing. It wouldn't sound like that because we're not trying to produce conflict. Exactly. We're trying to produce solutions. And this, let's put a pin on that and come back to it because that goes along, I think, with our complicity discussion that we're going to have in our main segment today. Before that, just to give you an update on the federal budget. Mm-hmm. There has up to, been up really... to the minute, up to the minute federal updates because the, any update it only expires. It only lasts like a week or two. So right. And <laughs> you that's have the to process, follow along closely. That's the process that, that Republicans in Congress have put in place. There is now a two-step process for funding the federal government through year end. There was a December 8th deadline and a December 22nd deadline. And Republicans passed a two-week stopgap funding bill to get us from the 8th to the 22nd. And here is what Sarah Lenti, who is a political strategist and policy advisor who served under Condoleezza Rice and worked as a lead researcher for Mitt Romney's 2010 book had to say about this. Eyes wide open. Republicans aren't stalling the shutdown because they are working on thoughtful bipartisan solutions to issues ranging from deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA to defense spending to infrastructure to the children's health insurance program known as CHIP. In fact, in the words of one Republican representative earlier this week, the stalls are to sort through end-of-year drama among themselves, an obviously prudent use of taxpayer money. In this column from Sarah Lindsay, she predicts a shutdown sometime next year because they're going to keep doing stopgap measures until they can't anymore Mm. because they're going to have to get something done in order to not be just slaughtered in 2018 races. And she doesn't think that they're going to get there. Um, Also, while we're on the topic of... Um, financial pol- economic policy and the way in which the GOP is currently legislating. So the Wall Street Journal had this article called The Tax Man Cometh. Senate bill's marginal rates could top 100% for some. This is a quote. Some high-income business owners could face marginal tax rates exceeding 100% under the Senate's tax bill, far beyond the listed rates of the Republican plan. That means a business owner's next $100 in earnings under certain circumstances would require paying more than $100 in additional federal and state taxes. It says... This is a Wall Street Journal, y'all. Precision sacrifice for speed. Oh, no, this is Washington Post. Precision sacrifice for speed as GOP rushes ahead on taxes. Like, they were trying to get this done so quickly that they don't even, like, they have made huge problems for themselves. There's some incredibly bad law in here. Not just we're trying to fix a problem. We don't know exactly how this is going to work out. Just, like, bad errors. What the heck? Like, typos that lead to people having to pay $100 Marginal tax rate. Oh, my man. Mm. Get it together, guys. 
And and you can't get it together in two weeks. You can't no, get DACA stop. and chip and infrastructure and defense spending done in two weeks. That is bananas. It, okay, it I mean, really discourages me. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Y'all had seven years to put together the complex policy that would be your answer to healthcare. That should have been your big thing you got accomplished in like the first year of being in control of both houses of government and you failed. So stop trying to squeak out a victory. That's not how legislative work legislation works. Just cut it out. Like just stop. You got it wrong. You didn't do it. You weren't ready. You couldn't pass it. That's the reality. Stop trying to rewrite history and save the day. It's just ridiculous. This is not a football game. This is Congress. This is legislation. You are not going to be able to throw a Hail Mary and save yourselves. It's ridiculous. I really like Senator Tim Scott, and I was listening to him being interviewed over the weekend. I think he's a thoughtful guy. I think he wants to do the right thing most of the time. And in reference to Roy Moore, he said, and he strongly said he he was against him before the allegations of Mm -hmm. sexual assault came out. And he said, look, our party is big enough to have disagreement within the party. And that's true. And I think that's a fair thing to say. The answer is... You shouldn't be in a situation where you need 100% of your party to back something like the budget Mm -hmm. because you should be doing that with independents and with Democrats. When you set up the United States Congress like a survivor vote Mm -hmm. where if anybody switches alliances, you're screwed, you're doing it wrong. That's That's not how you should do these answers. I never thought about that. Like that's so much pressure on your caucus. What a terrible way to treat your members. You know what I mean? Like that just puts too much pressure on them. You should be able to get this done without every single person that puts way too much pressure on your members and puts them in untenable positions that they then have to explain to their voters. That's such a good point. I never thought about it like that. And who has that pressure landed on this year? We have acted like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski hold the fate of the nation in their hands. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong. And that's ridiculous and not where we should be. And it's because this entire party has decided they're not going to talk to anybody else about funding the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. So let's compliment the other side before we head into our main section, which I think is relevant to everything that we've discussed so far. I mean, can I just steal Tim Scott? I'm just going to steal Tim Scott. I'm just going to take a, that He one. is a very thoughtful person. And I really, really I like that. wish we had more like him. And I'm going to keep thinking about that. So I'm definitely going to – because that is an incredibly good insight. And um, I'm going to keep thinking about that one for a while. So good insight, Tim Scott. I wanted to compliment Bill Scher, who I know nothing about, except that he was quoted in a story about the Democratic Party moving forward in Politico, which I read with a lot of interest as an outsider. A number of people, you know, people like Tim Kaine, all the way down to more behind the scenes operators were asked what the Democratic Party needs to do from here. There was a lot of hand-wringing in in this article about, and not just hand-wringing, but real passion about, we need to eliminate superdelegates, we need to get rid of caucuses, we need to change this and that about the the apparatus that is the DNC. And Bill Scher said, you know what we need to change? Absolutely none of that. Mm -hmm. There are great arguments for all of that, and the counter-arguments are just as persuasive. And I don't care what the Democratic Party does necessarily. But I was so relieved to hear an adult voice say sometimes both there's just effective 
there are effective arguments on both sides, you know, and this is kind of a waste of time because we're not going to dramatically change this party by getting rid of superdelegates. And I think that sounds true and mature and I appreciated it. Yep. 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 I have some thoughts on the Democratic Party, but I'm going to save that for our main segment in complicity, which is coming up next. So when Beth recommended Lindy West's article on complicity, um, I thought she was just like making the argument the word of the year should be complicity. And then I discovered, no, no, Dictionary.com really made the word of the year complicity. I was stunned when I read the entry from Dictionary.com about this choice. They talked about climate change and social media platforms, power and sexual assault, and even the president's statements about Charlottesville, and then wrote this. This year has seen a real awakening to complicity in various sectors of society, from politics to pop culture. As we do the hard work of processing what this all means, we must examine our own behavior and ask some difficult questions. Could I have spoken out in the past and didn't? Did I go along with something because it was the path of least resistance? Silence does not always equal complicity. We also must consider the very real reasons why we choose not to speak. Our choice for word of the year is as much about what is visible as it is about what is not. It's a word that reminds us that even inaction is a type of action. The silent acceptance of wrongdoing is how we've gotten to this point. We must not let this continue to be the norm. If we do, then we are all complicit. That is from dictionary.com. I mean, get it, dictionary.com. That's amazing. Round of applause. And then I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast. He has written a big piece on impeachment. And there's just a section of the show where he talks about, you know, what are the history books going to say about us? When we look back, this there, this is an abnormal situation by any definition. What is going to happen? What are we going to – they're going to look back and say that we did? And he's like, I just wanted, to, you know, for my small role in it, I didn't want to say, well, I'm not going to examine impeachment because it's, politi- it's politically unpopular or people are going to accuse me of bias. He's like, I just felt like I have to do what I'm going to do. And I thought it was just a very interesting statement on complicity. It just seems like everybody's come to the realization. I think it's part of it is like we've been here for a year now and everybody's looking around and been like, oh, man, <laughs> what is going on? And I think the Me Too movement is a huge part of that where we're all just sort of assessing ourselves and our society. And I think it's really positive. I think it's really positive. I think it's heartbreakingly difficult. Mm-hmm. I think that because it's heartbreakingly difficult, many of us maintain a stake in the idea that this is normal, mm-hmm. that we aren't in uncharted territory. I think that's why, especially as it relates to President Trump, so many people attempt over and over to make him just another president. Mm-hmm. And I do think the question, how will history look upon that, is a really important one. Mm-hmm. hmm Well, and that's what I was thinking about with relationships. That's what I was going to talk about with relationship to the Democratic Party, steering away from Trump for just a moment. Although I do think it's sort of related. So what I felt like I learned a lot 
particularly with the Republican primary and with the election of Donald Trump, is sort of the um, powerlessness of the parties to do what they used to do, which is to vet candidates. I think you see that in Roy Moore. I think the best thing I've read about Roy Moore is a former A.D. McConnell saying, this is what happens when you let crazies like Steve Bannon nominate candidates. They don't do vet. They don't vet. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. They don't background check. They don't hold any sort of standard of comment or ethics. And look, 
I am not arguing that political parties are our last vestige of ethics and politics. <laughs> Clearly, that is not the case. Clearly, they are a huge part of the problem a lot of the time. But I do think that they were a, a minor safeguard. And so I feel like what happened what with Al Franken, that he resigned, and I know there are a lot of Democrats unhappy with that, people that listen to this podcast. But I do feel like, for better or for worse, and this is happening in a lot of scenarios, including with the Me Too movement, I think we have a critical mass of women in positions of power, and I think that's particularly what happened with Al Franken that said they used their power within the party, and the party did what it's supposed to do, which is say, no, that we have a standard, you have not met it, we will not be complicit in this power grab. And I think for better or for worse, the Republican Party has not done that and has been complicit in so much of their own downfall. And I kind of told I told Nicholas, I'm like, you know what makes me really proud to be a Democrat right now? That we're willing to make our base really mad. I know there is a base of Democratic support that's really mad right now that Al Franken was forced to resign. And I get it. But like if you are a political party, I think your complicity comes about when you only deal with the base, when you only want to make the base happy. Like, to me, that's a form of complicity. Like, you are just, the only thing that matters is winning. The only thing that matters is your own power and making your base happy. And it makes me happy as a Democrat that the Democratic Party was willing to look at its base and say, you're not going to like this and we're going to do it anyway. And I'm sorry. I mean, maybe it's personal because they're still trying to kick me out of the Democratic Party (laughs) right now. A small subset of activist uh, base members in the Democratic Party in McCracken County. Maybe that's it. But, like, I just think that that, I mean, I think so much of we go along to get along. We take the path of least resistance because we know we will make people mad and we don't want to do it. And we don't want to put ourselves out there and take the heat. But that was another part of my sort of favorite part in Ezra Klein's um, piece, which was, look, the founding fathers were elitist. This is an elitist system set to protect ourselves from the whims of the masses. You don't like it, that's fine. Let's talk about rewriting the Constitution. But that is the system we built. And he was sort of like, you know, we have a pro- we have a system right now where the elitists are like never willing to t- do something unpopular. Like this idea that like, well, just let the voters decide. That's not, that's not what the founding fathers believed. Like, I just want to put that out there. Like, no, there was a, they built in safeguards to say, if you're an elite and the masses are going to get it wrong, fix it. Take the heat. Fix it. People aren't going to like it. It's not going to be popular. Do it anyway. That's your job as an elite. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting point. And I was p- proud of the Democratic Party elites. Yes, they are elites. They are senators. They are power players inside the party. And they did what they're supposed to do, which is say, this far and no further. So we have Star Wars tickets coming up. That's why this metaphor comes to mind for me. I think what we need is balance in the force. Mm. And I think that what we're coming around to is that there has not been balance in the force. Yep. We have had real problems with elitism in the United States. Mm-hmm. A lot of what Me Too is about yeah. is the fact that you can't trust people in positions of power. Because power is corrupting and that power is corrupting whether you are the manager at Lowe's Mm -hmm. or the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I don't think that always has to be true. But a huge lesson for me, too, is that the concentration of power in too few people 
has become a major problem in our country. And that is why many people, I understand wanting more of a citizen government. I understand being frustrated with feeling like you had to go to an Ivy League school and know all of the right people to be able to work for the New York Times or to get elected in the United States Congress. I understand that feeling. So we needed some course correction. The answer is not to swing all the way over to unchecked Mm -hmm. populism, Mm -hmm. which is what's happening with making the base happy right now in the parties. It's about balance and the force. It's about saying, I can respect the role of parties to vet candidates, but that vetting needs to have its outer limits. That vetting needs to be done responsibly. That vetting doesn't exist in order to make one or two people the gatekeepers to everyone who ever gets on a ballot. Mm -hmm. That's really hard stuff to have structures that are meaningful, that function appropriately, and that also don't take advantage of the power and the responsibility granted to those structures. But that is Friends, what we got to figure out in our families and our workplaces and our politics. That's what we've got to figure out. It did seem like I'm hoping, desperately praying, that there does seem to be um, a bubbling up within the Republican Party of people saying beyond the usual candidate, you know, the usual um, suspects like Mitt Romney and Evan McMullen uh, saying this far, no further. Richard Selby, the senior senator from Alabama, went on more uh, Jake Tapper's show on CNN on Sunday morning. He is sort of notoriously doesn't do a lot of press. He waited to this last weekend, went on the press and said, I did not and could not vote for Roy Moore and you shouldn't either. So I thought that was powerful. I thought that was good for him. Good for him for saying no. This is not, the only thing that matters is not the election of another Republican. You don't want to vote for a Democrat? Fine. Write in a different Republican. But like this, is, I thought that was very admirable. And Nikki Haley also came out and said um, on CBS's Face the Nation with regards to women who have accused President Trump of sexual harassment, and there are many, she said they should be heard and they should be dealt with. And I think we heard from them prior to the election. And I think any woman who has felt violated or felt mistreated in any way, they have every right to speak up. So, look, I'm not saying I'm not ready to put Nikki Haley on a pedestal, but like pushing back about against complicity comes in many forms. And I do think even if it's not good enough and it's not what we'd like them to do, any movement in the right direction should be praised. I do believe that. People are doing this in incredibly hard places right Mm -hmm. now, too. There is a shocking essay. It's only shocking that it was written. Honestly, what's in it is when you read it, you can understand how this happens. But there is a shocking essay out there about the experience of a clerk in the United States Court of Appeals under a federal judge that we'll link in the show notes. And I have to tell you that I think of of all the things that have come out, this is one of the bravest things that I've seen. And maybe I have that perspective, having practiced law for a while, but there is a sense of sacredness about the bench and a sense that you do not talk about what happens in courts and that judges are above everyone else. And look, that's not good. The judiciary is critically important to our country, and it's also not good. And we've talked about this in political terms. It's not good for the judiciary to be so sacrosanct that a a circuit judge can psychologically torture clerks. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely understand how that culture exists. That is that is not shocking to me at all that that culture exists. When I think about the power differential, I guess here's here's part of what troubles me so much about the idea of fake news. 
a lot of what is needed to restore that balance between, you know, kind of the trusty and delegate model of our public officials is truth. And when we're Mm -hmm. constantly assaulting what's in front of us and the truth of it to the point where we don't believe anything. Yeah. I don't know how we move forward. I think the best thing we can do to combat complicity in our lives in every aspect is to make sure that we're surrounded by people who will tell us the truth. Yeah. I mean, honestly, can I give everybody some homework? I've never done this before. I just want to ask people. I want to give everybody some homework. Look, if you occupy any position of power, and you should define that very broadly, if you're a parent, if you're a manager, if you're an elected official, if you're a professional, like if you have power over anyone in your life to any degree, you need to look around and make sure that you have at least one person and preferably more who is very different from you and always willing to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And willing to tell you the truth in ways that could be hurtful, in in ways that you will most certainly disagree with sometimes. And you trust that person to be telling you the truth from a place of love. If you don't have that, you're doing it wrong. And you are at risk for some very bad decision making and some real abuse of your power without even knowing that you're doing it. Yeah. And if you don't have one of those positions of power, and I think most of us do, but if you don't have one of those positions... Think about how you can be more of a truth teller to the people who do, Mm -hmm. you know, who can you develop a relationship with where you can speak that kind of truth to them? Because I really think that is the only thing that starts to get us back to the, or I don't know if we've ever been there, honestly. Like if you, if you realistically and open-heartedly examine our history, maybe we've never found that balance, but you know, we're always evolving. So I think that's the next step. If we want to evolve out of this, I think it requires us at every level to engage more with people who are willing to just call us out and say really hard things to us from a loving place. And look, that's the to take this up back around as it always does to Donald Trump. That's always been my number one concern with him. It is not his policies. It is not even his Diet Coke usage. It is the fact that he seems incapable of self-awareness and self-evolution. And that is terrifying to me. People who refuse to take in information that contradicts their worldview are dangerous. It's a dangerous way to be. It is how people go to jail for crimes they don't commit. It is how people are abused and oppressed. It's because, I mean, I really think that, like, the idea that I'm never wrong is maybe one of the most dangerous viewpoints you can have. And so if you're going to fight against complicity, you know, you have to be a truth teller and you have to think, like, sometimes I'm going to get it wrong, too. And, you know, I think that it's difficult. It is difficult because I think the reason we're talking about it is here's what we realized, we realized the world felt like it ended last November to a lot of us. But it didn't. It went on and we laughed and we had parties and we bought things we shouldn't have bought and we wa- we binged watch Netflix. And it feels like, you know, the world went on but is changing in big ways. And I think we all have some anxiety about that. The anxiety that... The conflict between we feel the same, our lives are still comfortable in in much the same way as they were for most of us back no, back in November, but we know things are different. And what does that mean? And what's our responsibility for that? And how do we 
continue to be good citizens and good active members of this democracy and stay energized and figure out the impact of all this in the face of so much unknown, in the face of so much fear. And look, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, I had a wonderful weekend and then saw that terrible picture that went around of the starving polar bear and thought, I don't even know what I thought. I just felt anxiety. I feel guilty when I have a good time. <laughs> like, it's just a tough space we're all in right now. And I think that the reason they picked that word is because we're all sort of waking up and saying, okay, if the revolution isn't going to come overnight, how do we fight it? How do we, if the resistance isn't an impeachment or a different electoral college vote in the first three months, what does that mean? What does it mean? How do we go on with our daily lives and still um, fight against something we know is wrong? And that's hard. It's just hard. You know why I think there's a glass ceiling in so many organizations? I think it's because once you rise above that glass ceiling and look down on the whole, a lot of what you realize is that the emperor has no clothes. Mm. A lot of the things that are hardwired into organizations are just unnecessary and often counterproductive and exist solely to keep the people who are being enriched by the organization enriched Mm. or who are empowered by the organization in power. And often when you bring somebody new to that top floor, that person is willing to say, this doesn't make any sense, y'all. And that's hard. And because it's so hard, we have created a world in which people who are willing to say that don't get to the top floor, right? Mm -hmm. Or the only people who get to the top floor are people who are willing to be complicit. Mm-hmm. And I think a really painful thing about this moment is reflecting on where we participate in that individually. I know I've thought a lot over the past few weeks about the times when I've been in conversations that go like this. Well, we really need a woman to do this. And I think to myself, I don't know if we have the right woman and the wrong woman makes it even worse. And that is both true. Like that makes me a pragmatic strategist. It also makes me complicit because the easiest thing in the world to be is the wrong kind of woman. The easiest thing in the world is to try to step up into a new environment and then be told that you've gotten it wrong. Your tone was wrong. What you said was wrong. You don't have exactly the right experience. Those are the gatekeepers. And I've participated in that. And that sucks. Like that Mm -hmm. rips me up to think about And we're all doing that all the time Mm -hmm. and being asked to stop is painful and it is hard and it will not happen overnight. And it won't happen in a fun way that you can like have a snazzy slogan on a t-shirt about. Yeah. And I think, you know, I feel that in such a global way, you know, because the, when you were talking about, Are you in a position of power? Well, if you're an American, yeah, you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back to that Ezra Klein, he said, you know, we are the most powerful country in the history of the world. And we have put someone incapable of doing the job in the most powerful position in our country. And, you know, I can rail against his 
terrible decision-making in moving the capital of Jerusalem. But I am neither Palestinian or Israeli, and it's not my children's safety at risk due to that decision. And so it's easy for me to complain and then move on and go decorate Christmas cookies. And I feel terrible about that, but I don't, I feel powerless too. And that's the, the, the painful part of complicity, right? It's because it is easier to maintain the status quo. And I don't know, and I don't think it's fair or realistic to demand that um, all of us sort of take to the streets. I don't think that's going to happen, although, heck, it's happened more in the last year than I've probably seen it happen in my lifetime. But, you know, I don't, I feel lost. I still, I feel power, I feel powerlessness in the face of conversations about complicity because I, you know, I want to do more and I do everything I can, but I don't know. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I would like to encourage you to not feel that way. Thank you. You you are an elected official. True. You are using your voice on this podcast all the time. You are talking to your friends and neighbors. You are doing your work. Mm. And I think that's the question for each of us. What is our work? Mm-hmm. I think some of my work right now is self-reflection. Mm-hmm. What have I contributed to that is not the world that I want to see? And how do I stop doing that? And how do I contribute more in the best way that I'm equipped to, to a better world? We had a listener email us and we are going to take her up on this um, in January about like, how can we all equip ourselves to do our work? And, and especially if your work doesn't mean running for office, what can you be doing? And we have to be prepared for some answers to that that maybe aren't always the answers we want. I was telling somebody about this podcast the other day. I love doing this, but I honestly feel at this point like it doesn't matter if I want to do it or not. Mm. This is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. This is what you and I are supposed to be doing right now. Sometimes I think we want a certain kind of answer. I think there are people who love being part of the resistance, right? And who love like making all kinds of phone calls and firing off emails and good for them. I don't have any fight with that. That alone is not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, most of this is not about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I believe in my soul that he is symptom, not disease. Word. And we have got to get our minds around that if we want to change everything to be better. And I don't think changing everything to be better should be such a scary idea because these are matters of the soul as -hmm. much as anything else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, put down the defensiveness. That might be your work, right? Your only work might be to just put down the defensiveness. I got this incredible email from a listener and I want to share more about it at some point, but I don't have his permission to do that yet. And I feel like I need it. But essentially we're having this back and forth discussion about conversation between men and women based on the discussion we had about how men typically instruct and women invite. It is one of the most interesting email exchanges I've ever had with anyone because we're both just like earnestly saying, here's what I know. And here's what I don't know about this. And here are the everyday interactions that we have with each other and tiny little signals that we give each other in those interactions and how I think we could change those to start to be more balanced. Like that to me is incredibly fulfilling. And that's really different than marching or something, mm-hmm. right? Well, but it's, we all have to play those roles. It's so good because you're so good at helping me see, like, I really just, uh, the activist part of me and the reason people always hear us on the nuanced life and think I'm the conservative 
is because I do. There is a strong current of black and white in me, and I want there to be a right answer. I want us to all sign off on it, and we'll all do it together, and we'll all decide that this is the one thing we're going to do, and it's going to fix it. Like that's just that's how my brain works. That's how my brain wants the world to work, even though. I know it doesn't. And I have, this is why I have the truth teller that is best silvers in my life to be like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. We're all not going to find one solution that's going to, we're going to do it. It's going to fix it. I mean, that's, that would make me feel so much better in my um, control oriented heart. But I know you're right. I know we all have to do, we have to do the best we can and it's going to look different on everybody. I know, I know it's just hard. And oddly, you know, I'm the political conservative because I, think it is really important for it to not usually be one way or the other and to mm. make space for lots of different things and a lot of complexity. I'm sad that the party that I thought I could affiliate with has run away from that. Mm. Um, but I do think right now there's so much to think about and so much to fix. No one is served by you like have days when you eat Ben and Jerry's and worry about the polar bears. Okay. But no one is served by being stuck there. I mean, the polar bear looks so sad. Did you see him? I did. And it's awful. It's It's awful. awful. But like, don't get bogged down. Get inspired, not bogged down. Get inspired to where you can identify your work and go out and do your work and know that you're contributing your piece to this big universe that we all live in and try to inspire other people to do the same thing. You don't have to solve every problem. You're not complicit if you are not fixing the world right now. That's Uh, not the call to action. Right. Well, and here's the thing that makes me feel better and hopeful is that I feel like when I went to Vox Conversations two years ago and when we were in the middle of the election, I was having some very small conversations about our institutions are not up for the challenges we need them to be up for. Like I felt like there was like some small spaces. This podcast was definitely one of them. And like where we were having kind of beating around, like we're just, everything needs to change. (laughs) We're in a different world we're not in the 1950s, 60s, which many of our institutions were built for. Like, we just we need a different world. And now I feel like in the last year in particular, in the last several months, like that conversation has gotten so much bigger. It seems like everybody's like, man, everything's broken <laughs> or like just beat up and like needs to be upgraded and updated. And that is encouraging to me, like the idea that we're and may, you know, God bless me. Maybe it took Donald Trump for us to all look around and be like, oh, it's all broken. Okay. 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 Well, we're Americans. We can handle this. Like, let's just, let's have a long, long, very painful conversation about what's broken. But I do feel like that's the first, that's the first essential step. And it does seem to be happening. So that is a huge source of hope for me. And none of us need to take it personally. When you hear that it's broken, you don't need to take that that on personally. You don't have to do that. I think that's why we get so defensive all of a sudden. I think when those of us who are white hear that race relations have always been broken in our country and have contributed substantially to the wealth of our country, for example, we tend to like take that on very personally and get super defensive about it. We don't have to do that. I mean, here's my just own personal reason that I think I go to this place. Not to throw Baptists under the bus, but I was raised Baptist. Did you ever hear about Lottie Moon? Yes. So Lottie oh, Moon was every year. Every year, y'all. Yeah. Every year. Mm-hmm. Lottie Moon was a missionary in China and she gave and gave and gave and gave until she literally starved herself and she was held up as an example. 
as an example, every year of like something to strive for. And I think it just got in my head that like, if you're not, you know, used to, I would like sit around in terror that I would be called to be a missionary like Lottie Moon. Literally, I was like terrified of it. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be called to be a missionary. I don't want to do that. I don't want to starve myself. And now I feel like I've just like transferred a lot of that to politics. (laughs) Like, oh my God, I should be like in the streets. I should be doing more. I should be sacrificing it all for the cause. I think a lot of this is just my evangelical Lottie Moon upbringing for real, though. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. When I go back to that Frank Lund's focus group, I think that there are people sitting there who sincerely believe that conservative policy defined largely by social issues is so essential to their belief system and not their political belief system, but their belief system about like what we're doing here on earth and what our calling is as humans, that they can't unravel any of it. Mm. And so every new bit of information is greeted with a shield up. Mm -hmm. And so your work to avoid complicity might just be putting that shield down Mm -hmm. to say, what can I hear in a new way? What can I hear that I've not heard before? What can I hear and not take to mean that I am personally bad or wrong? And that is a big ask for lots and lots of people in this country because of stories very much like the one that you just told. Okay. I feel better. How about you? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well then good. That means let's, let's move on to what's on our minds outside politics. like to lighten things up a little bit here please talk about after lottie moon and her starvation i'm telling you i carry her everywhere i go go ahead i'd like to talk about spotify and how it enables a very peculiar habit that i have i love a good cover more than Mm. anything else i love to hear a song like in all kinds of different variations and spotify is so wonderful because i can just put the title of a song in and then basically have an instant playlist of that song over and over by different people interpreted in different ways than i I'm so stoked I mean, I do that it. with Christmas songs. Like, I love Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I think it is the best. And I have, like, approximately 15 versions of it. But I never do that with, like, other songs. What songs I do you listen to like pretty that? well only do it with other songs. Well, if I really, really like a song or think it's a really interesting song, I do this. And I'm always excited by what I found. For example, do you know the song Hide and Seek by Imogene Heap? I think so. Well, it's a great song and a really kind of unusual song. And there are some wonderful covers of that song, which I wouldn't have imagined. Um, the Scientist. I love the song The Scientist. Yeah. There are some fantastic covers of The Scientist. There's a really interesting cover of Someone Like You by Adele from this group of guys um, that, that just put a really different kind of spin on it. I don't know. It just makes me happy. I don't know what it is about... Uh, kind of the freedom to explore these songs that are sort of well-charted terrain. But I really love that about Spotify. Well, I'm continuing my just devouring of pop culture because I was moving and I didn't get to watch any TV or read books or do anything for what felt like two or three months. So I finished A Man Called Ove and I loved it. I'm reading a new book called I See You, which is an Ann Bogle recommendation. I went to see Lady Bird. Have you heard about Lady Bird? 
Yes, I have. How was uh, it? It's so good. I cried so hard. There's this amazing line where then she's writing her college essay and she's like, wants to get out of Sacramento. And the nun says, you write beautifully about Sacramento. You really love it. And she's like, no, I don't. I just pay attention. And the nun says, that strikes me as the same thing. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Line. It's such a good line. Oh, it's a, I literally gasped. I was like, that was so good. It's just really beautiful. So good. And, um, I hope I pronounce her right, her name right. Sosha Ronan is so good. She was amazing in Brooklyn. That's what I saw her in last, but she's just so good in it. And like you can just see the beauty and the love that the the female filmmaker who who I can't remember her name Greta is her first name I can't remember her last name um, has for like the Sacramento and her own mom and like I just it was so good and then I watched um, the first season or the first episode of season two of The Crown. Did you watch season one? You didn't, did you? I watched like two episodes. Oh, it's so good. I just love her so much. Um, I'm waiting for another individualization where the rock is where the rock gets in, which we all know just rocked my party last time. But it's it's I watched one episode. I also watched an episode uh, or watched. I'm sorry. A Hallmark movie called Sharing Christmas because friend of the pod, Lori, has a podcast with her husband, who's a pop culture writer, um, called A Very Hallmark Christmas, in which they are watching all 33 new Hallmark movies, holiday movies, and then podcasting about them. And so Nicholas and I are going to go guest, um, not host, co-host, or guest star on the the pod on Wednesday about this movie, Sharing Christmas, which was so terrible. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It was so terrible. I want those two hours of my life back. But it'll be really fun to talk about. It was fun to watch it. We watched it with my mom and my stepdad. And my stepdad, like, loves Hallmark movies. And he was like, this is not one of the better ones. And I bet you he told us five times. What I really love, what I really love is A Christmas Wish. That's my favorite. I mean, I bet he told us that six times. I'm going to have to go watch A Christmas Wish now. But, like, oh, man, it was so bad and so cheesy and so plot holes left and right but um it'll be fun to talk about that so if you are a pop culture or hallmark fan um go check out Lori's podcast on wednesday nicholas and i'll be over there speaking of low brown television a new season of top chef has started and i'm so excited and i have like my fancy politics people who watch big brother and survivor but i do not know who watches top chef so wait is top Top chef Chef, top what top chef is the the chefs compete to win like the it's not the yes. one where they make the things with the defined ingredients. What's that one? No, that's Chopped. Chopped. I watched Chopped a little bit. Top Chef is like truly talented, sophisticated yeah, culinary yeah. minds coming to the table. So, I mean, it's a little better than a lot of the other reality shows that I watch. But anyway, if you would like to talk Top Chef on Twitter with me, I would be super excited about Have it. Have I ever told you how I feel about food shows? No. I do not understand the appeal of food television. Clearly, I am the minority here because it is a massive behemoth of a channel and the shows are hugely popular. But, like, every time I watch them, I just, like, I just want to eat it. Like, it's torture. You don't don't cook. That's why. I I love watching it because I always learn something because I love to cook. Okay, that makes sense. But there are people who watch those shows who don't cook. I'm sure there are. But I'm just saying for you, I can see why you don't like them. Yeah, because it's just torture. I'm like, well, I want to eat that now and I can't. So this sucks. Like... I really want to eat this beautiful food from this artisan ice cream shop in New York City. And I really want to make this, eat this amazing scallops dish this guy just put together. Like, I just want to eat it all. See, for me, it's never like, oh, I want to eat that. It's more like, oh, I never would have put those two things together. I want to try that. 
Well, that yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I'm a baker, and I still don't even I don't even like watch baking shows. But again, I just want to eat it anyway. That's just my weird. See, that's my black and white worldview again. <laughs> if the food exists, then I must be able to eat it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Fancy Politics. I do not know who left this review for us, but before we go, I want to thank the person who left a review about anticipating that she would hear this podcast and love Sarah and just tolerate me and finds <laughs> us more like Mr. Rogers, where you can't dislike either of us. It really touched me. So awesome. thank you for that. We appreciate all of your reviews and all of your support until we are back with you on Wednesday on the Nuance Life and Friday right here. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. <laughs>